Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to Parshas Korach, and I want to start by talking about an overarching theme that seems to appear not just in Parshas Korach, but is probably most starkly evident here, um, but actually starts in the previous week, I believe, which is the challenge to Moshe's authority. We begin when the Miraglim return. Some might even say the call to have Miraglim was a challenge of Moshe, but but the Miraglim um, coming back and and not being on board with going into Eretz Yisrael and therefore Bnei Yisrael being punished and the Miraglim being punished. And then we have, so we have this sort of uh, um, rejection of Hashem's plan, of Moshe's plan, And now here comes Korach, and he is specifically challenging Moshe's leadership, right? And then we see this is not going to be the last time, because even after Korach and his followers get swallowed up and killed, the rest of the people are challenging Moshe's leadership. And later we're going to see that there are further challenges. There are going to be challenges that are internal, and there are going to be challenges that are external. Uh, in Parshas Balak, we're going to see that Bilam is coming to, to try and curse Bnei Israel, And we see that Kazbi and Zimri, at the end of Parshas Balak and the beginning of Parshas Pinchas, there's all sorts of issues that, that are at play. And so I want to turn this over to you a little bit, Akiva, and ask you, and I'll, I'll phrase this as two parts. Part one, what should someone do if you are in a quasi-leadership or middle management position and people are questioning your authority and abilities. And part two, I'm going to look at certain professional sports teams, and there's this interesting idea that when the team is not doing well, they hire a new coach. They fire the coach and bring in a new coach. They don't necessarily change the players. They change the coach, and they expect that to change everything. Right? And we see this in the business world as well. Sometimes a company's not doing so well, they'll bring in a new CEO. And in theory, yes, it's the CEO's job or the coach's job to change the players, but oftentimes that isn't the expectation. It, the expectation is that simply bringing in new leadership will change things. And so maybe you can also speak a little bit to how leadership impacts culture. So that's, that's quite a doozy. Um, and before I even get into any aspects of what kind of would work, I think it's very important to point out that uh, 
tyrannically killing all of your uh, dissenters is probably not the most effective method for uh, collecting nuance and obedience. And unfortunately, I think that that's in part what does continue to lead to challenges of Moshe and Aaron's authority and leadership because a plague and the earth swallowing them whole is probably not going to change everybody's mind forever, for a little bit. Um, but Avi, I'm actually also going to go back a little bit farther than you. I'm going to go back to Parsha Belotcha when Miriam and Aaron challenge Moshe. And they don't challenge him in the same way that everybody else challenges him. They attack his character and they attack his wife. And I think actually that one could argue that that is perhaps really where the biggest stuff begins because when you start attacking someone's character and someone's personal choices and decisions, it's hard to not have the masses feel that that is a reflection on the rest of their leadership abilities. We see this all the time in politics. We see this all the time in any kind of leadership program where, oh, well, the, this guy did this in 1972, so judge them now in 2020. I realize it's not 2020, but these are, these are the way things often happen, and it's that mudslinging, that, that attack on somebody's character that has nothing necessarily to do with their leadership abilities, that oftentimes is that initial spark. It fuels the continuing fire against Moshe and against Aaron. And I think that one of the best ways to truly have this not happen and have this work better is to have a cohesive focus, a boundary of this is my personal life and this is my professional life. Obviously, it's not always easy to do, except as a society, we can set that boundary as well. We can set that rule, right? What would it be like, and I'll just toss this out as a you know future idea for all of the generations to come, what would it be like if when somebody starts attacking someone's character that has nothing to do with what they're going to do professionally, they get shut down? What if it has nothing to do with who you're married to, whether or not you can lead? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't your choices from when you were 15 not affecting what you can do when you're 45, wouldn't it be interesting if that was in fact what we knew was the reality, even though we all know that that's the reality? Um, when Miriam and Aaron start to attack Moshe, they really open up this Pandora's box of, well, if he did this, and his own brother and sister can say this, because I'm sure it just wasn't the two of them talking, right? That's the problem with Lashon Hara. So I was thinking about that. It may even have been the two of them talking, but because Miriam got Sara'at and had to leave the camp, my guess is it became a public issue, even if privately, even if it had been private previously. Exactly. So, no matter what, and and of course that's the biggest harm with lashon hara. It doesn't matter. There's always ears. There's always something that gets known. There's always something that gets heard, and that's why we are supposed to be so careful with what we say 
and what comes out of our mouths. And so we have that initial attack. And then there's the complaining and the complaining and the challenging and the challenging. And then come, come this huge event where Korach says, you guys aren't qualified to lead. What makes you think that you could do better than, than us? And at no point in time do Moshe or Aaron even say that they can do better. Right? So it's kind of this, again, presumption on not fact. It's very easy to create a beautiful story when you don't include the facts. How many times do we know in, our, in the Torah that Moshe said, I'm not the man for the job. You should probably get someone. That's why Aaron is included in the first place. And so we see that there's this transition. And the best way other than if it's, you know, too idealistic to say don't attack somebody's personal character that has nothing to do with their professional ability building a cohesive network of and within leadership you know I some of the best people that I've ever worked with have had the theory of if you're I'll, I'll use my example when I was in training right I had a supervisor phenomenal supervisor and when she came in she said to all of us as residents, if you screw up something with a patient and they need to speak to me as well, rest assured I'm going to defend your competency as a physician, make sure that I don't throw you under the bus, and we're going to talk about what you're supposed to do correctly in private. And that's a great leadership ability. This ability to say, my team is my team, and I can't do anything without my team. So how do I build that cohesion? And knowing that we had that protection, knowing that we could make a mistake and genuinely learn from it, but also not be fear that our supervisor is going to say, yeah, they're an idiot, um, was, was really something empowering. And I think that perhaps we see that that was part of the attempt when we had the 72 in the Sanhedrin, right? We had this idea of, well, create some judges, create some people who are going to help manage things. And, and I realize that that may not be the specifics of what was within the text, but knowing how leadership works, we can't imagine that there was no suggestion that there was going to be a, this is your team. So now... Let's go back to the first question I asked you, which is, so what do you do when someone challenges you? Let's assume there isn't somebody else there to, or, or no one else who stands up and says, uh, I think so-and-so is very qualified. So what is the person who is, who is being challenged? Uh, would you suggest they do what Moshe and Aaron do, which is rather than try to defend each individual complaint against them basically say, look, my, my record of work, my body of work speaks for itself. Uh, I believe that, that I've shown you that while I am human and make mistakes, there are, we, we've been incredibly successful. Is there things you, one can do? So I think a lot of times what's necessary is for someone to have the opportunity to see that it isn't as simple as it looks, right? And Avi is an educator. I'm sure you've been maybe at some point in your educating career where a student ha may have said to you, 
Rabbi Green, I can do this way better than you. And being that I know you have the confidence in the background to handle that, I can't imagine that you never would have said, okay, you're welcome to come up. And then when they see that they can't do it, and, and maybe not to that degree, because we don't want to embarrass someone per se, but I think giving someone the opportunity when you're truly confident in what you can do, and I have this all the time, right? I'll have patients who say to me, no, no, I think it needs to be this. And one of my, one of my favorite phrases to use to them is, which is the truth for any time you're seeing a physician, you're not seeing me in the hopes that I'm going to say everything's going to be hunky-dory if you don't do anything to change. You're seeing me because I'm going to tell you what could happen if you don't change, if you don't do something different. And I always remind them that it's wonderful if I'm wrong, right? If somebody tells me, well, I would like to continue to drink uh, a case of beer a day and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, quite frankly, if they're correct, that's great. Nothing, nothing bad is going to happen to them. Unfortunately, we know from medicine and we know from, you know, past and usually the individual's past, something bad did happen, does happen, will happen. But telling them, no, no, you're wrong, right? We just dig in our heels when that happens because we're people. So I think in some ways, when you have a challenge to your authority, inviting the opportunity to be challenged rather than digging your heels in and saying, no, no, I'm right. See, I have all these examples to prove that I'm right and saying, okay, well, I'd love to hear what you have to say, is sometimes an opportunity to inspire confidence from not only those who already have given you the confidence, but also inspire confidence in some of those who are questioning your ability. Because someone who is truly confident in what they can do can be challenged. So let's go to the second question, which is, so when when sports teams or companies change leadership in the hopes that that impacts culture, are they generally right? And is that a good way for institutions to go? Definitely case by case, more specifics, right? I think if it's, if it's the fundamental idea that if I change my shoes, then I'll be a different, uh, I'll have a different type of walk. No, not happening. Um, so if I change my CEO and I run everything the same exact way as, as it was being done, is it going to change anything? No, no, it won't. Uh, and an effort, maybe that's just to pay the new guy less money. Um, however, in practice, if you have a malignant environment, a negative environment where the leadership is really pushing this negative attitude and, and creating demoralization amongst the masses then yeah, change the leadership, right? And so I think that's the question here, and that's what some of the people perhaps who we don't hear about and who don't get swallowed in the earth or uh, have a plague afflict them, perhaps that's what they were wondering about is what kind of environment is this? And is this a malignant environment? And again, that's where we get back to how do we show someone that it isn't? Well, we accept challenges with an open, welcoming approach where... If somebody can truly do something better, there's nothing bad about that. So, 
Avia, uh, in the line of uh, blasphemous questioning, I'm I'm going to throw out there that we just talked about the fact that, you know, when when you're being challenged in leadership position, probably the worst thing you can do is utilize fear and tyranny to um, to get people back in line. And yet, in Pasha Korach. Korach and his family are all swallowed up by the earth, and then there's a plague. And so it seems as if, to the possibly less trained eye, that the tactic for getting the people back in line is fear and tyranny. And we just talked about that's not the good plan, and yet Hashem seems to have come up with that plan. So please help us understand, because... I, I can't imagine that that is my is a correct understanding what I'm understanding from this. So I think there's a couple of different components that we have to look at. The first one is that if we're looking at the swallowing of Korach and his family, we have to understand that's something that Moshe actually calls for. right? So that's not Hashem's plan, that's Moshe's plan. And Hashem sort of like we talked about in the last segment, backs him up and says, that's what Moshe asked for, that's what Moshe gets, right? Because if, I, if Moshe says, guys, if you aren't doing the right thing, here's what's going to happen to you. Well, they don't do the right thing, and sure enough, Hashem's got to back him up and, and do what he said. So there's, there's that component. Um, and it's very interesting because this is a great place to mention that if you look at the Psalm of the Day for Monday... It is Mizmor Shir Liyom Korach. Yes, it is the song. Now I'm blanking on the term. Um, It it is the the psalm of the uh, of the song of the sons of Korach, and and actually we talk about how Korach's sons may not have actually uh, uh, been in the pit with him, right? Because they repented, or and or because. They weren't involved and believed that what their father was doing was incorrect, which can be a whole other discussion about when do we go along with our parents and when do we not. So that's one component. The second is, I think there are times, if and when, there has to be action and there cannot be discussion. Um, and, and that's when there is things going on in the middle of, action, right? So you have Aaron and Moshe with no other backup, so to speak, other than Hashem, facing Korach, Datan, Aviram, and 250 of the leaders of B'nai Israel. That's a big group to be facing. And if they're coming at you, and they seem to be threatening physically, then perhaps there needs to be a physical match that is met. Um, and and that works for a short period of time. And, and here I'm going to make a, uh, it may be a weak comparison, but I'll say it is a comparison nonetheless, right? If we look at the events of January 6th and the people who stormed the Capitol, right, in that moment, as much as the police may have wanted to say, stop, let's talk about this, when people are physically pushing, the response needs to be to physically push back. And in many cases, I think the, the officers who were there did an admirable job 
of not using extreme force, right? Very rarely were, were guns pulled and certainly not in the outside as far as I've seen. But at the end of the day, right, um, it was a physical conflict. And if you agreed with what those people said but didn't show up, you weren't part of that physical conflict. Then you could have a conversation, you could have a discussion. And so the same was true here. You had a group of people who were becoming physical, and so there needed to be a physical response. The people who were not physical, right, could have a secondary response. And that might have been this idea of, well, we're going to have a test. And the test is something where anybody who wants to lead has an opportunity to come forward and stick their staff into the ground, and God will show who God has chosen. And I think the part that's really interesting here is that the people trusted in God. Even if they didn't necessarily trust in Moshe and Aaron at that moment, they trusted in God. And that may have been part of what they saw. They may, that may have been part of the fact that there were these supernatural events that seemed to be happening on a regular basis, whether you include the man, whether you include certain other things. But at the end of the day, they trusted in God. And so when our own staff blossoms into a, an almond tree, that becomes a sign that they are willing to accept. Finally, I think that we look at this section and we see tyranny at first, but we have to remember that that was not Moshe and Aaron's plan all along, right? In fact, even in the first Aliyah, we say when Korach approaches Moshe, Moshe calls to Datan and Aviram to have a conversation with them, and they refuse to show up. And their line to him specifically is, did you take us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die here in the desert? And they're taking the words of the Miraglim, this idea of it being a land flowing with milk and honey, where they were talking about Eretz Israel, and it's a phrase we still use today, right? Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey, that that was supposed to refer to the land of Israel, and they used that to refer to the land of Egypt. So they were spitting in his face, saying, you want us to come talk to you? Forget it. So they weren't even open to the idea of discussion or negotiation. Towards the end of the Parsha, the Kohanim and Levim have the gifts that are to be given to them enumerated. And this is odd, it might seem, considering that we just went through Levim trying to take power from Moshe and Aaron, and Aaron as the Kohen being established in that right, not just for himself, but for his family going forward. Is this a question of, to the winners go the spoils? Is this a question of, with great power comes great responsibility? What's going on here, Akiva, in terms of why are we using this moment when they are winning, 
right? Moshe and Aaron are winning. Why are we using this to turn around and say, and this is what you get, but this is also what you have to do? So I, I think it's just that. I think it's really this, there was a whole bunch of people not getting along, let's put it mildly, and the the hope is, I think, with with the the staff slash almond tree and and this uh, you know cover that okay, so people will people say it's over, it's done. Let's get back to the way things should be. Let's let's let bygones be bygones. We realize this is our role, and and so it's a reminder of the roles. It's a reminder that. The Kohanim are responsible for providing the sacrifices, repenting for the people. Regardless of whether they agree with what happened or not, if somebody brings a, a guilt offering uh, or a sacrifice, they have to accept it. They have to, they have to let, it, let it up. They have to send it, send it on its way to Hashem and, and appropriately offer with the amount of respect and importance that any offering to Hashem would deserve. And it's a reminder of that. And then I think there's also the piece, and while you're talking about the gifts, there's also the mention of the fact that you don't get land. You have no land in in Eretz Yisrael. You have no portion. And so... It's this idea, I think, in part, that, okay, yeah, fine, you have this really important responsibility, and you have, you have these gifts, you have these tithes, but at the same time, the people aren't just dependent on you. You're also dependent on the people. You don't have land with which you own, and therefore, you have to get tithes, because you got to eat. And, and I think it's a wonderful reminder that it's not about the strong oppressing the 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 weak and the small uh, minority being overlords over the masses. It's really, in fact, it, it reminds me a little bit of. Sorry, I got to do it in the Lion King, where. Uh, spoiler alert, The Lion King, it's a Disney movie with lions. It's um, 30 years old, so I love that you're giving a spoiler. Alert. Some people may be listening to podcasts and for some reason not watching television. Um, so we have, we have Simba, the, the young prince, says to his father, I don't understand. We're, we're the kings, don't we? We eat the antelope. We eat all the we, we eat all the herbivores. He doesn't say herbivores, but we eat all the herbivores. And father looks down and says, "Well, when we die, we go back to the dust of the earth. Not so biblical, but you know, and and we become the grass, and the herbivores eat us. And it's this whole idea that." You can't be a true leader. You can't be the oppressive minority over the weak majority and have that system work. And instead, we have a system that says, yes, you have your responsibilities. 
and you don't get this. Therefore, while people are reliant on you for this thing, you are reliant on the people for that thing. And I think by that nature, it also reminds the entirety of the Kihila that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in charge. Because if we don't send our offerings as we should, Hashem gets upset with us. And similarly, if we don't appreciate and, and get from the land that which Hashem gives to us and know where it's coming from, then we can't survive. So as a slightly lighter around the Shabbos table question, the question is, what children's movie or children's story do you believe has the best message and which one maybe has the worst message or the message you would want your children to invest in the least? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. So, Avi, what is, what is your least favorite and most favorite of the children's? The message I like best is definitely The Lion King, which is what prompted this question, because uh, I believe it has that wonderful message of... Simba taking responsibility, moving past some of the fears and challenges in his life, and, and, and taking on the responsibilities that were expected of him. And uh, the movie, I think, that has the worst message is The Little Mermaid, because she chooses to give up everything that is her family, that is important to the way she grew up, um, and change herself physically and emotionally um, for someone she has barely met and thinks she is in love with when it right, really just might be infatuation. What about you, Akiva? So, I have to say, I think that most Disney movies have absolutely horrific messages. So, I'm going to go with the alternative side of things and say that I think one of the one of the best children's stories that has, I think, the best message is the Hooper Bloop Highway. Because for those of you who aren't familiar, um, I think it's actually the entire recording might be available on YouTube. It's an older one, but it goes through different choices that this child has to make to see where, where they want to grow up and where they want to be and who they want to be. And what's really kind of a great message is... Every single thing has pros and cons. Nothing is perfect. And that's reality. And I think one of the worst messages um, is probably Wreck-It Ralph. Um, right? Because what happens in Wreck-It Ralph? The guy who decides he wants to do something different and improve upon himself is shunned and then shunned again and told that he's wrong that he should be upset everybody hated him and then he wanted to change and everybody hated him more so he apologizes for 
everything. He basically apologizes for doing teshuva. It's a terrible message.